system careening from crisis to crisis. For a handful, it produces unparalleled levels of wealth. But for the many, if they even have a job, it's a paycheck to paycheck existence. What are the priorities? The United States spends close to a trillion dollars on the military. That's more than the next 10 countries combined. Compare that with the less than $50 billion allotted to the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation. With robust funding, it's very likely we would have been better prepared for the pandemic and would not be the world leader in deaths. The future? We will move toward a more humane and decent society or continue on our present destructive path. Our guest today is Noam Chomsky, the legendary scholar activist who has been a leading voice for peace and social justice for many decades. Author of scores of books, his latest is Consequences of Capitalism. I talked with him on March 15th. He was at his home in Arizona. Welcome to the program. Glad to be with you as always. Talk about the, the role of, of intellectuals, uh, and they seem to be in two categories, organic and traditional, uh, the latter sometimes called disparagingly stenographers to power. I think it was Reinhold Niebuhr, the liberal theologian, who uh, coined the phrase responsible uh, intellectuals. Gramsci called them experts in legitimation. Well, the term responsible intellectuals, responsible people, comes from the main liberal theorists of modern democracy called progressive theorists. People like Walter Lippmann, uh, Harold Laswell, the founder, one of the founders of modern political science, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, considered the theologian of the liberal establishment, highly revered, uh, Edward Bernays, one of the founders of the public relations industry, they all wrote uh, uh, texts about how democracy should function. And the idea was similar, the kind of thing that Hume talked about and that Gramsci talks about. They said that what they call the responsible man, which means responsible intellectuals, educated responsible men, they have to essentially maintain power. Uh, the general public, they say, is stupid and ignorant, cannot be uh, left to run their own affairs. Uh, they're not capable of it. Uh, they have to be main controlled by what Niebuhr killed, called uh, necessary illusions and emotionally potent oversimplifications so that they keep in their place. They have a place, as Lippmann put it, they are spectators, not participants, but they do have a role. They're supposed to show up every four years and push a lever, lever to pick one or another of the responsible men to lead them. And then they are to go back to their own affairs and not bother us. We, the responsible men, are to be free of the roar and trampling of the bewildered herd 
Uh, we should not, as last will put it, be overcome by democratic dogmatisms about people being able to work for their own interests. They're much too stupid and ignorant for that. Uh, we must run it. As you know, Mars is in the news. Uh, there's a Perseverance rover on the red planet sending back photos. And years ago, you talked about a journalist from Mars. Well, how would she cover the pandemic and the introduction of vaccines? It's a very strange thing that's happening with the introduction of vaccines. In the United States, a substantial number of people are refusing to take it, overwhelmingly Republicans. Many reasons, uh, distrust of government, distrust of science, uh, other objections, but it's not restricted to the United States. So in uh, France, for example, according to the most recent reports, about 40% of people are refusing to take the vaccine. It's a very strange phenomenon. There's overwhelming evidence of the importance of taking the vaccine if we want to get this plague under control. But uh, fear and uh, a dislike of government, science, authority has reached such points that people are taking very dangerous actions to avoid what has to be done. Now, you can compare this with other countries. It varies. So happens to be an article in the New York Times this morning on Australia, which uh, got the disease very quickly under control. Uh, mainly, one reason is they have a highly effective health system, which people trust. They trust the health system, which works very well. Uh, we have a dysfunctional health system. Others do too. Uh, secondly, they just are willing to take collective responsibility for one another. So they accepted harsh lockdowns, which were very successful, and the disease was essentially controlled. The same has happened in New Zealand, same in Taiwan, and same in other countries. But there are places, the United States is one, interestingly, France is another, where uh, the... Uh, discontent and distrust is so high that a great many people are just unwilling to join in the collective effort to uh, uh, control and put down the disease. And there are many lives being lost. Uh, there was recently a study in the United States which compared the city of Seattle with the general situation in the United States. Seattle is one place where uh, the virus was pretty much well controlled by the kind of means that were successful in Australia, so Taiwan, New Zealand, South Korea, other places. Uh, and the estimate was that if that had been applied to the whole United States, it might have saved several hundred thousand lives. These are not small things. That discontent you spoke of took a dramatic turn on January 6th with the assault on the Capitol. 
What was your understanding of what went on there? Well, first of all, it was explicitly an attempt at a coup. They were trying to overthrow the elected government. That's a coup. Uh, the participants were a mixture. Rather striking, if you looked at the photographs, there were very few young people. That's quite unusual. Political events, demonstrations, and so on are mostly young people. This was not. This was middle-aged and older people. Of course, they were all enthusiastic Trump supporters. He was egging them on. Uh, they all apparently fervently believed that the election was stolen. Their country is being stolen from them by uh, evil forces. Uh, I remember almost half of Republican voters think that Trump was sent by God to save the country from evildoers ranging from, uh, you know, democratic uh, pedophiles and so on to minorities to others who are undermining and destroying their traditional Christian form of life. Uh, there were elements there from the uh, more violent uh, militias, the Proud Boys and so on, it was a pretty violent affair, came pretty close to serious uh, casualties among Congress and others. There were five people killed, could have been much worse. Uh, it was uh, a desperate act by people who are desperate. We have to, we can't overlook that fact. A large part of the country supports it. In fact, popularity for Trump actually increased after his instigation of the coup attempt. This is a large part of the country. If half of Republicans think that God was, Trump was sent by God to save us from evil forces, uh, the country is in Syria, has facing serious problems. It's kind of interesting to see what happened to the Republican Party after January 6th. The uh, People who basically own the country, Adam Smith's Masters of Mankind, the donor class, fund the party, they've been tolerating Trump. They don't like him. He interferes with their image of uh, soulful, humane people. You can put our trust in us and so on. They don't like his vulgarity, his uh, antics and so on, but they tolerated him because he was lining their pockets. Uh, all the entire legislative program was designed to uh, pour money into the pockets of the super rich and benefit the corporations, smash labor, eliminate regulations that protect people, but, in, but uh, interfere with profits. The whole program was that. So as long as he was doing that, they're willing to tolerate him. But January 6th was too much. And almost instantly on January 6th, the major centers of economic power moved very quickly and told Trump straight out, this is enough, get lost. Uh, Chamber of Commerce, major business roundtable, major corporate executives uniformly. Well, Trump took the plane off to Mar-a-Lago Mitch McConnell, most important figure in the 
Republican Party, uh, he heard the voice of the donors and he began to pretty sharply criticize Trump. And with him, he and other Republican senators began to race to the exits. But they didn't go too far because when they reach the exits, they're facing the raging crowds that Trump had mobilized. So they're stuck and the Republican Party is stuck. Are they going to listen to the donor class and restore a more genteel version of Trumpism? Or are they going to be swept away by the forces that remain in Trump's pocket? And McConnell and uh, Trump, the two major figures, they are personally at swords points. They can't stand each other, but they have a common interest. The common interest is to ensure that the country is ungovernable that Biden can't achieve anything. It's not a secret. It's what McConnell announced very clearly and explicitly when Obama was elected. McConnell didn't have Congress. He said, our task is to ensure that Obama can't succeed in doing anything. So he cut back the stimulus that was needed in other ways, hampered efforts to govern the country and deal with the country's problems. Uh, every reason to suppose he'll do the same right now. Trump wants the same thing with different goals. Uh, the two of them are combined in the effort to ensure that the country is ungovernable, that the population suffers as much as possible in the expectation that it'll be blamed on the Democrats and they can come roaring back in 2002 and 2004. We, we saw it in the a stimulus bill that was just passed. The Republicans uh, right now are kind of like the old Communist Party. They follow the principle of what the Leninists call democratic centralism. The party has a policy, it's handed down from above. Everyone uniformly must accept it. No deviation tolerable. So even though the Republican senators congressmen, they themselves support many aspects of the stimulus. They know there's their constituents support it, but they have to vote against it, vote against it 100%. Uh, that's the situation we are now. I must say that what Biden has done so far is a rather pleasant surprise to me. It's better than I would have expected. He's pretty sharply criticized on the left for flaws and omissions in the domestic policy. Foreign policy is a different issue. Some of these these criticisms are, my view, are correct, but a little bit unfair. There's only so much you can do when half of the Senate is, no matter what you say, is going to be 100% against it. And when there are Democrats who will go along with them, puts a limit on what you can achieve. Would you favor the elimination of the filibuster, which Barack Obama called a relic of Jim Crow? First of all, I, I doubt that it can be done. So it's basically a non-issue. Whether it should be done is another question. Uh, the filibuster has been used in very destructive ways. But in the past, it was also used in ways to bar racist legislation and so on. It's basically not a good idea, but I think it's not the fundamental issue. 
the basic issue is why you have two political parties, both of them dependent on the same narrow class of wealth and power, the donor class basically, and one of them so extreme that it simply abandoned parliamentary politics. And it's now fighting desperately to maintain itself as a minority party. A lot of the major struggles underway now really have to do not so much with the stimulus as with legislation that's passed in the House. H.R. 1, the first legislation passed by the Democratic House, is very significant. It basically fortifies voting rights. Now, that's critically important. There's a major Republican assault on voting rights. There are literally hundreds of legislative proposals around the country in states where Republicans control the legislature to try to prevent minorities and poor people from voting at all so that the Republicans can somehow maintain power, though they are a minority minority party. They almost always lose elections, but they maintain power through various means. And this is becoming more significant. They are now in a major effort to try to cut down voting rights so that they'll be able to hang on by a thread. H.R. 1, the Democrat proposal, calls for strengthening voting rights. What the outcome of this battle will be will have a major effect on the future. Uh, The Republicans have a kind of structural advantage in elections in that the Democratic voting base is mostly concentrated in cities, which means that a lot of the votes, given our parliamentary system, a lot of the votes are just lost. If you have, you know, 80% votes for a candidate in one place, it means 30% of them are essentially lost. The Republican votes are scattered in rural counties, uh, small states which have representation far beyond their population. This, All of this gives the Republicans a structural advantage. They can win an election even if they lose the vote by four or five percent. And the current efforts they're undertaking are an attempt to try to sharpen and strengthen that so they'll be able to maintain power even if they have even fewer votes, even if they're more of a minority party, which they're becoming for just demographic reasons. Uh, This goes along with the major McConnell project while he's been in power to try to staff the judiciary with young far-right lawyers who will be there at every level of the judiciary, the Supreme Court down to the bottom. So they'll be in a position to bar any progressive legislation for a generation, no matter what the public may want in the years ahead. These are all struggles going on. They're part of our highly regressive political system, which even under the best of circumstances would lead to a constitutional crisis. That's built in. You cannot continue to function as a formerly democratic society under the radically anti-democratic provisions of the Constitution. Uh, The most extreme case, of course, is the Senate, 
the Senate, uh, two votes per state means Wyoming with uh, 600,000 people. It's the same representation as California with 47 million. Uh, affects the electoral college, affects many other things. So these are deep problems in the whole constitutional system. They can't be fixed by amendment. Smaller states won't allow it. These are problems that we're facing over and above the truly existential problems. We haven't talked about those, but unless we deal with the coming environmental catastrophe, the growing threat of nuclear war, the serious threat of new pandemics, nothing else is going to matter. Out of the eight last presidential elections, the Republicans won the popular vote uh, only once. But to, to go back to uh, January 6th, talk about the potency of the canard that the election was stolen. Uh, go back to post-World War I Germany and the stab in the back theory that the Nazis used so effectively. That is to say, we won the war, but the communists, socialists, and Jews sabotaged us and sold us out. The people who say Trump won the election are not being hypocritical. I don't know about Trump. He's off by himself. But his fervid, uh, passionate supporters pretty clearly believe it. They believe the election was stolen. Their country is being stolen from them. Their traditional Christian white uh, communities are being stolen from them. They have some basis for it. You go through a rural town in the United States, what you see is houses for sale, businesses boarded up, uh, Main Street closed, and the bank closed, and maybe there's still a church. The former industries are gone. The young people are leaving. Uh, it's not a white Christian community anymore where other people knew their place. Okay? That's real. Uh, and it's the basis for the <laughs> willingness to believe stories like the election was stolen, even though, in fact, it's the Republicans who are way in the lead in purging votes, preventing voting, making it hard for Afro-Americans to vote and so on. But they do fervently believe it. So I don't think we should call it hypocrisy. It's much more dangerous than that. It's a wild belief based in elements of reality. That's the kind of belief that's extremely dangerous, but also offers promise because you can deal with the elements of reality in it and let the beliefs crumble when you get rid of the elements of reality on which it's based. It's true that rural America has been smashed by neoliberal globalization. It's a fact. And that doesn't have to happen. You can overcome those facts and with it, the belief systems will begin to erode. Not all of them. The ones that are based on white supremacy, on uh, traditional Christian, on Christian nationalism and so on, those are deeply embedded. Those are cultural, deep cultural problems. We're not going to deal quickly with the fact that, uh, I don't know, maybe half the population, forgot the numbers exactly, but something like that, 
uh, think expect the second coming uh, to be in their lifetimes. You're not going to deal with that by uh, solving the economic problems, but by dealing with things that are within our capacity to deal with, like the collapse of the economic base of rural communities, the destruction of poor farmers, the takeover by agribusiness, all of these things, uh, that can be dealt with and that erodes the foundations of the very dangerous belief systems. There's no other way to proceed and you just have to hope that that can work. The climate crisis continues apace. Just a couple of items on that. Uh, In early February, melting glaciers in the Himalayas caused floods, dams bursting, death and destruction downstream in the Indian state of Uttarakhand. That's one news item. In late February, a massive iceberg broke off Antarctica's Brunt Ice Shelf. At 490 square miles, the iceberg is bigger than New York City which is 302 square miles. So talk about those issues. Well, you can describe them. Anybody who reads scientific journals knows that uh, you regularly see discoveries of worse problems ahead. And they are taking place whether we like it or not. They're happening. What we can ask is, can we take measures to mitigate the threats and overcome the problems? And the answer to that is, yes, we can. It's too late to stop that iceberg from pulling away and from other bigger ones from going after it. That's caused by the carbon dioxide that's already in the air, in the atmosphere. The number of particles per million and the atmosphere is rising steadily into a real danger zone. And that's going to continue simply because of the damage we've done already. So we should certainly keep an eye on these threats. It's possible that Greenland has already reached a tipping point where it may just move towards a melting stage, raising the sea level and so on. But the question that should be right before our eyes is, what can we do about it? And the answer is a lot. Another book, which Bob Paul and I just came out with a couple couple of months ago, mostly based on his very detailed work, very excellent work on the climate catastrophe, uh, Global Green New Deal, and um, it's about that, that outlines measures that can be taken effectively to uh, deal with the crisis with it by in a feasible way with calculations by others as as they roughly conclude that about uh, two to three percent of gross domestic product would be sufficient to control the crisis and lay the basis for moving on to what could be a much better future. It's not a loss, it's a better world for all of us if we move to less pollution, better jobs, better opportunities, uh, better lifestyle, all possible within 
a percentage of GDP that is far less than was spent during the Second World War. Now, of course, it's claimed, well, that was a war for survival. This is a much greater war than the Second World War. Uh, the United States would have survived if uh, the world had been divided into a German-controlled world and an American-controlled world, as American planners anticipated in the early days of the war. It would have been a very ugly world, but it would have survived. If we don't deal with this one, there isn't going to be any survival. Now, this is a much greater war than the Second World War, but with a fraction of the expenditures then, there are ways to deal with it. You're listening to Noam Chomsky on Consequences of Capitalism. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To order CDs of this program, as well as Chomsky's latest book, Consequences of Capitalism, just call us 1-800-444-1977. Our website, alternativeradio.org. We're offering MP3s, PDFs, and written transcripts of this program at no charge. Call us 1-800-444-1977. Now, if you take a look, if Trump had had another four years in office, we might have literally reached tipping points which were irreversible or come very close to them. His major policy programs were destroy the environment as quickly as possible, maximize the use of fossil fuels, eliminate the re regulatory apparatus which somewhat controls them, with the goal of increasing short-term profit for sectors of industry, fossil fuels and others. This is the most malicious program in human history, barely discussed. That's not what Trump is criticized for. But whatever else he did pales into total insignificance as compared with this. Another four years of it, we might have been pretty near the finish line. Well, fortunately, we're spared that, though it might come back in two or four years, remember. The McConnell-Trump program could succeed, in which case we're in a desperate situation. These policies are renewed. You can barely predict the outcome. But now we have time to try to do something about it. Now, I talked before about the split in the Republican Party. There's a split in the Democratic Party as well, an important one. It showed up on climate policy. So in the months leading to the primary and then the elections, I was keeping a pretty close eye on the Democratic Party webpage because you know, giving a lot of talks and interviews about it, want to see what they're saying. If you looked up climate, democratic climate policy, what you got for a long time into August was Biden's program. Biden's program is not what it ought to be, but it's better than anything that came before, thanks to the engagement of Sunrise Movement and other activists. It was not a bad program, not enough, but not bad. Late August, it disappeared from the web page. And what you got instead was how to donate to the Democratic Party. Well, 
I'm not on the inside and can't be sure what happened, but I think you can make a guess. The Democratic National Committee, the Clintonite neoliberals, the Wall Street donor-oriented sector of the population party, they don't want this. And I think there's going to be a real battle now as to whether Biden's program can not only be preserved, but must be moved forward. And it must be moved forward if we're going to survive this. That's a hope. Same is true on other issues. Take, say, the stimulus. Stimulus has a lot of good things in it, the recent 1.9 billion uh, stimulus. Lots of good things in it, child poverty, raising incomes for the poor, and so on. But they're temporary. If they're not extended, it's not going to matter much. So there's going to be a battle to extend them and to, and to go beyond what they already uh, provide. These are major battles coming now, both within the Republicans apparently are just going to block everything. It looks as though, at least in the short term, there is very little hope of dislodging any of them from the attempt to render the country ungovernable and somehow get back into power, maybe by cutting back voting rights and other measures. That looks like a unstoppable force. But within the Democrats, there's a lot that can be done. And it has to be done. We can all remember that when Obama came into office, he came in with the enormous assistance of a, an army of young volunteers who worked very hard to get him into office. As soon as he won, basically told them to go home, thank you, goodbye, it's all under control, you're gone. Unfortunately, they went home. That meant that he could betray his promises, which he did. Within two years, he'd lost Congress. If you make the same mistake today, that's what's going to happen. Whatever you think about Biden, he's going to be under pressures from the conservative sector of the Democratic Party, the Clintonite neoliberal Wall Street oriented sector, and uh, they'll uh, beat back progressive programs, which will be bad enough for the country, but on climate, it'll be disastrous. In this pandemic economic crisis, uh, community efforts, uh, mutual aid uh, become more prominent and, and essential solidarity. Food banks and pantries, clothings, uh, co-ops. Um, talk about mutual aid and, and co-ops. I know the, the one in the Basque region of Spain, Mondragon, is often cited as a successful model. It was a pretty interesting development. It happened spontaneously in many places. And uh, just people getting together in a community to uh, provide help for one another. If there's some elderly person who can't get out, let's bring him food. Uh, if there are people who, if there's not enough uh, water, let's bring water to people. Uh, sometimes it's, it, it happened in the most remarkable ways. So like one of the most extraordinary examples was in the extremely poor areas in Rio de Janeiro, the favelas, which are miserable areas of horrible shacks, 
piled on top of one each one another. They're basically run by criminal gangs, drug gangs and others. If the police come in, it's like an invasion. They have to come in in armored cars, you know. Uh, but uh, the favelas, people have no water. They don't have any way to distance. They have no health care. But they did get organized, and it was run by the crime gangs. The crime gangs moved in and organized the favelas to try to help people survive these impossible conditions. And it happened in, it's happened in poor areas all over. This kind of natural commitment to mutual aid, mutual support, and solidarity revealed itself in many ways. Now, there is, even before the pandemic, there was already the beginnings of a development of uh, worker-owned industries, uh, cooperatives, uh, collectives, uh, localism in agriculture, many such efforts to try to deal with the extremely harmful effects of the neoliberal globalization policies, which have had a, a really shocking effect on the general population almost everywhere. But there have been attempts to deal with it. So in areas of the Rust Belt in the United States, where bankers in New York and Chicago had decided that the steel industry should be shifted to China, uh, the working people didn't just give up. They started to develop. They tried to buy out the steel industries, but, but the owners wouldn't agree to it. They wanted more profit, and they don't like the idea of worker-owned industry. It's dangerous. So that was gone, but they instead what's happened is a proliferation of worker-owned enterprises involved in the growing service economy, hospitals, universities, and others. Uh, Garel Perovitz has written a lot about this and has been involved in initiating many, much of this work, the next, next Economy Project. All, all of these things have been going on. There have been moves, I don't know how far they'll go, to by some of the unions, like the steel workers, to uh, enter into arrangements with some of the extremely successful worker-owned conglomerates in mainly in Spain, the best country in Spain, Mondragon, has been to see if something similar could be developed here. Uh, all of those things could be very important, not only in themselves, but in showing the direction in which society must go towards more collective responsibility, more participatory democratic activity if we hope to emerge from these crises with a, any kind of a decent society. All of these things are happening. And the mutual support in reaction to the pandemic that you mentioned is an extremely important part of it. The southern border and immigration, where you're sitting, the border with Mexico is just 60 miles away. Unaccompanied children in the thousands are being detained there. What would be a fair and just immigration policy? The first immigration policy should be eliminate the conditions from which they are fleeing. These people don't want to be in the United States. They want to be at home. Home is unlivable. They're forced to flee. 
we have a large share of responsibility for the fact that it's unlivable. But during the Reagan years, there was a sharp escalation in the US assault against Central America. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed, more hundreds of thousands displaced, uh, torture, destruction. People are still fleeing today from the wreckage that was created by Reagan's wars in Central America. Well, we can deal with that wreckage. It's very easily detectable. You may recall the main source of refugees four or five years ago was from Honduras. Why Honduras? Because there was a military coup in Honduras, which overthrew the mildly reformist Zelaya government, installed a military dictatorship, placed power back into the hands of the super rich oligarchy, uh, turned the country into a, one of the homicide capitals of the world, repression, violence, people started fleeing. That's where the caravans came from. Could we have stopped it? Not, the problem wasn't the caravans. It was why it was happening. Why it was happening was because while the whole hemisphere condemned the military coup, Obama and Clinton supported it. They refused to call it a military coup because if they did, they would have stopped, had to stop military aid to the junta. So they said no. And then when a fake election was run under the military regime, it was condemned all over the place. But for Obama and Clinton, it was a positive step towards democracy. So you impose a horror chamber, people flee. So the first step in an immigration policy is eliminate the reasons why people are fleeing. That can't be done in a day, but you can take steps towards it. That's the beginning. The next step is to stop the criminal policy of enlisting Mexico in preventing people from fleeing from Central America to our borders. We have to put an end to that policy. Next thing to do is to live up to the basic conditions of international law, provide decent conditions for people fleeing and reasonable opportunities for them to appeal for uh, amnesty and admission. All of this can be done. It's not a huge cost. Perfectly. And instead of that, what we have is, as you say, I'm just north of the border and right to the south of us, thousands of people dying in the desert, literally dying in the desert. It's a very forbidding terrain. In the summer, it gets way over 100 degrees, 120 degrees temperature. There's no water. Since Clinton, incidentally, the policies have been to try to drive people fleeing into the most hostile areas. So block off the areas where there's fairly easy transit, they could be picked up by a humane asylum policy and drive them into the most dangerous areas where they'll wander in the desert, get lost and die of starvation. Meanwhile, use tactics like flying helicopters over them, uh, border patrol helicopters to scatter people who are in the desert. So that if there's a group together, they'll get scattered, get lost and die. Now, there are relief efforts from Tucson. They're great, wonderful groups here in Tucson. No more deaths. 
the main group, which tries to send people into the desert, set up small encampments where they can offer some medical help if people can make it there, can leave uh, bottles of water in the desert for people who are uh, dying of thirst. Uh, the border patrol breaks into the camps, uh, uh, smashes water bottles and so on. This has gotten much worse under Trump. They were sort of before Trump, there was kind of a tacit agreement that they would leave each other alone, but this has gotten much worse. All these horror stories don't have to happen. The several layers in which policies have to be shaped, all completely feasible. The murder of George Floyd triggered widespread protests across the U.S. and even around the world with Black Lives Matter kind of leading the movement. Uh, it is said that this is a moment of racial reckoning. Terms like white supremacy, white privilege, and systemic racism have entered the lexicon. Where do you see the racial justice movement going? Well, the upsurge after the George Floyd murder was pretty impressive. It didn't happen all at once. It's the result of years of organizing, education, activism, which laid a basis so that when this spark came, uh, the kindling could burn. And it was an amazing uprising. Solidarity, black and white together, enormous popular support, had about two-thirds popular support, which is almost unknown for a social movement. And take a look at Martin Luther King, never came close to that, even at the peak of his popularity. A lot of it is maintained. Some was dissipated, partly because of tactical errors, uh, failures of one kind or another, which you should pay attention to. So the, the slogan, defund the police, became prominent very quickly. It's a sensible idea, and it has a very sensible interpretation. The interpretation given by the Black Lives Matter organizers, by Bernie Sanders, by Ocasio-Cortez and others, the meaning of it was let's remove the police from activities where they don't belong. The police have no role in things like domestic disputes, overdoses, uh, suicide attempts, uh, things like that all involve community service organizations. They can handle them properly. Leave the police to what you need police workforce. Actually, Ocasio-Cortez was asked once, what do you mean by defund the police? And her answer was, go to a white community a white suburban community. That's what I mean by defund the police. If a kid is caught uh, breaking a window to steal drugs, you don't send him to jail for 30 years. What you do is find out what his problem is and deal with it. Okay, that's defund the police. But the slogan was hijacked by the right wing. And it became a propaganda story about Look at these crazy lunatics. They want to remove all the police from your community so you'll be subjected to terrorists, uh, criminals, rapists, and so on. Well, nobody wants that. 
was a big talking point for the right wing and the Trump campaign. There's a lesson. You have to be careful how to back up your programs with meaningful educational, organizational, and activist programs to say, here's what I mean. It's a good idea. It's good for you. You should support it. Don't fall for the propaganda line that's coming. Well, that was a failure. Uh, there were other things, but basically it's a major step forward. And I think you can build on it. It's not the only example. Uh, the 1619 series in the New York Times was another very interesting step forward. Of course, it's being lambasted by professional historians. You got this detail wrong, you forgot to say that, and so on. Doesn't matter. It was a very powerful recognition of what 400 years of vicious treatment has meant for the Afro-American population and what legacy it leaves. That's a real breakthrough. A couple of years before that, nothing like it. Well, all of these are steps forward. Now, you conclude the chapter in the book, Consequences of Capitalism, the chapter on social change with um, Karl Marx's old mole. Uh, can you um, talk about that? Well, Karl Marx had this image of uh, revolutionary spirit, which is just below the surface, going back to David Hume, and power is based on consent. But beneath the consent, there's a current of saying, I don't really want this. I don't want to be ruled by a master. And it doesn't take much for that to break through. And when it does, you have the kinds of changes that really make a society, move a society forward. So that old mole is burring there. And it can go in many ways. Like, for example, just it's a very dramatic fact when you look at the history of the labor movement. In the early days of the labor movement, right through the 19th century, early industrial revolution, the main theme of the labor movement was that having a job is a terrible attack on your personal rights and dignity. Having a job is not something you look forward to. It's something you may be forced into, but it's an attack on your dignity as a human being, your rights as a free human being. Having a job means being forced to live under the orders of a master for most of your waking life. Nothing wonderful about that. Well, in fact, skilled workmen back in the late 19th century, and they, were, they had a very lively working class press, they expressed their hope that over time, people wouldn't succumb to this uh, attack on their rights and accept as normal the idea that they have to be subject to a master. They hoped if that day comes, they hoped it would be far in the distance. Well, the day has come. People do think having a job is the greatest thing in life. I think Marx's old mole is right beneath the surface there. If there's an opportunity to think about it, to recognize the possibility that you don't have to be subject to a master, you can run your own life. You can run your own enterprises. 
that keeps coming very close to the surface. The sit-down strikes when I was a child in New York during the Depression, they were a step towards saying, we don't need the bosses. We can take this place over and run it ourselves, which is true. That's when uh, attitudes changed towards uh, and support for New Deal measures really grew across the population. That's when the Supreme Court stopped blocking all New Deal measures, when sectors of capital recognized, look, we've got to accommodate ourselves to these rising developments or else we'll be in real trouble. And I think this keeps coming out. The new economy project that I mentioned is moving in that direction too, saying you can run your own enterprises. It doesn't have to be bankers in New York who decide whether this enterprise moves to China. You can decide. You can decide how you want to run it. You can decide in solidarity with workers in China and Mexico. You have common interests in making life better for all of you. The unions and their names have the word international. The names usually doesn't mean much, but it can mean a lot, can be brought to the surface. And it's quite striking at this moment, we're in a period where internationalism is in the forefront, dealing with the pandemic, dealing with global warming, these are international issues, has to be done together, can't do it in one place, can't stop global warming in the West, goes on elsewhere, we're all done. Pandemic has no borders. Uh, labor rights have no borders. The repression of labor in China and Mexico harms American workers. We can work together on this. Now, that's the direction things should move. Did you get your vaccine? Did, Did I get you, it? Yeah. Got the second one two days ago. Oh, so okay. You have a sore arm. And how are you dealing with the isolation there? It's easy. I mean, for other people, it's really harmful. But for us, it doesn't matter much. We can stay alone. <laughs> Take good care of yourself. And thanks a lot. Great to talk to you again. That was Noam Chomsky on Consequences of Capitalism. I talked with him on March 15th. Noam Chomsky, the legendary scholar activist, is America's leading dissident intellectual. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. Since its inception, Alternative Radio has made a special effort to record and archive Noam Chomsky's work. We have more than 260 recordings, as well as Chomsky's latest book, Consequences of Capitalism. For CDs of today's program with Noam Chomsky and for his book, Consequences of Capitalism, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Our website, alternativeradio.org. 
In solidarity with you, our listeners, we're offering MP3s, PDFs, and written transcripts of this program at no charge. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. FM in Calgary. We're just here to have fun. Got here waiting, wishing for the snow. 